0: Welcome to What'd You Miss This Week. I'm Scarlett Fu. This new podcast has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market close show that I co-anchor with Joe Weisenthal on Bloomberg Television. It's called What'd You Miss? And our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspective on the week's top stories and those that you may have just missed. It is the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, President Trump told Wall Street, you're going to miss me when I'm gone. And predicted a market crash if he were to be impeached. We spoke with Nick Colas, co-founder of Trek Research, to ask whether an impeachment could derail the historic bull run that we're on. Nick told us why the market conditions are not the same as 1974 when President Nixon resigned.
1: No, we're not. I mean, in the 70s, we had a number of horrible macroeconomic events. We had a quadrupling of oil prices in 1973 after the Arab-Israeli conflict and the Saudi oil embargo. And then we had the unwinding of the Bretton Woods Agreement of fixed exchange rates really hit its stride in 1974. And as a result, the S&P was down 16% in 73 and 26% in 74, but a very different backdrop to what we have today.
2: So on the question of impeachment specifically Setting aside whether it's going to happen, whether it's a good idea, whether it's a bad idea, if suddenly Democrats take the House in uh, November and they're like, all right, let's get going with this impeachment, what, is, uh, what does history tell us that that would mean for the markets?
1: It basically says markets care about policies and not people so much. So if you have a long-running discussion in the U.S. political system about impeachment, if the American public starts to weigh in one way or the other, and it really strangles consumer confidence, then yes, it could have an effect. But in order to draw the line between impeachment and capital markets, you have to connect it with something fundamental. It right. could be consumer confidence, could be business confidence, but you have to make that connection, otherwise the two live separately.
0: And you could argue that we've already gotten the benefits of the Trump administration in the form of lower taxes and deregulation or at least the starting efforts of deregulation.
1: Yes. I mean, what I worry about more is what happens in 2019, both in terms of the impeachment narrative and the markets, because we have 20% earnings comps this year, very low rates. That's great. Market works. Market should continue to work. Goldilocks scenario. In 2019, earnings growth drops to maybe 7 to 10%, revenue growth 5% or less. And then things don't look quite as robust as mm. they do this year. And you're beginning to talk about 2020 elections as well. So I don't think this is an issue for right now, but it is an issue in 2019.
0: And so sentiment could be hit immediately. I mean, volatility could be there. Sentiment could be hit in to a certain extent, but we're not going to see the 26% crash that we saw back in the 1970s.
1: It doesn't feel like it. The fundamentals just aren't there. And keep in mind that if we do get this roiling of the markets, Treasury yields will have to come down. Okay. That safety bid is going to be there, and lower yields support higher valuations. All
0: right, let's get to how American people feel, because you've been pouring through different polls to figure out how much support there would be for an impeachment of the president, uh, whether it's Democrats, whether it's Republicans, whether it's independent. What was the overarching conclusion here?
1: Yeah, so Quinnipiac does a great poll on an every-couple-week basis, and it's asked this question, if the Democrats took over the House, would you favor beginning the impeachment process against President Trump? Mm-hmm. And right now, as of the last poll, end of July, 55% of respondents said no. But it obviously breaks down across party lines. Over 65% of Democrats say yes, they would favor it, but only but 53% of independents say they wouldn't, and 55 overall. So it's very split right now, even with all the data and information that, uh, in, uh, that people have.
0: The majority says no, basically. The majority says no. What did markets
2: do when John Tyler was impeached in 1843?
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: I'm uh
2: President Clinton, did that have any effect on markets?
1: No, because we were in the middle of this tremendous bull market in the late 90s, and so sort of more of an analog today. So that. the
2: big picture between the 70s and the 90s it's just there in both of those periods it's the macro environment is really key and if the impeachment doesn't derail that one way or another it's just hard to see why it would matter. That
1: yes. Look, the wild card that we wrote to clients last night and this morning was if the Mueller investigation comes across with a bombshell, something that is clearly not currently known by the mm-hmm. public, then you have to rethink this entire process and probably you do get a fairly tumultuous period of time that could affect consumer confidence. But we have seen no evidence of that yet.
0: I think what's interesting is where you have seen evidence of the volatility in particular today is the emerging markets. Mm-hmm. It seems whenever there's a domestic trouble for mm-hmm. President Trump, wow, he looks for another distraction, mm-hmm. yes. either it's China and today it was South Africa. So is while you're saying, look, your haven bid is bonds, is there an element that you get out of emerging markets?
1: Yes, there is. And you have to layer on top of that the moves for the Fed to keep raising interest rates, which is very tough on emerging markets, very tough on, mm. on uh, vulnerable currencies like the rand, like the, the, the Brazilian currency, like the peso. So that's a tough one.
0: Does the Fed start to take that into consideration when it raises rates? I mean, it shouldn't. That's not part of its mandate at no. all. But as Caroline points out, that's going to be, as the president gets cornered, he does tend to look for other ways out.
1: Yeah, weirdly, you know, if you look at the market overall this year, SP up 7%, world indices, X the U.S., yeah. down 6%. And the money flows are very clear. I'm taking money out of EM, I'm putting it into the U.S. That just gives the Fed more room to raise rates.
2: Overall, impeachment, politics aside, you know, we're sitting here very close to all-time highs. Not quite, but you know, for all intentions. Ah, Earlier this week, right there, Russell 2000. Is there right other indices at all-time highs? Is there anything that you see is warning or? you know, should make U.S.-focused investors nervous at this
1: point? No. I mean, it's, it seems so simple to say, yeah. and it seems like you're just whistling past the graveyard. But for the moment, no. The economy still continues to be strong. Q3 is coming in pretty well. Unemployment still strong. Fed sees everything as pretty green to raise rates. It feels pretty good right now. And you do have the benefit of money flowing back to the U.S., which probably is sort of the right. hidden wild card of this year's market. The thing that was not as predictable was the EM meltdown and cash flows back to U.S. markets.
0: All right. So if impeachment is the word of the day and everyone's getting all worked up about it, what happened to trade? Does that factor in at all? It feels like we just kind of move from one headline to the next. Are people trying to quantify what the trade discussions and the trade uncertainty mean? Because even as we say, we don't know how it's all going to shake out and there's plenty of room for both sides to negotiate. Sanctions have uh, sanctions. Tariffs have gone into effect.
1: Yes, I mean, you know, we had this hope for agreement on NAFTA that was supposed to come today, that clearly will not. So, well, the,
0: the afternoon is still young. Yes, it is, <laughs> Don't we but
1: not? it does seem like trade is going to be that more persistent issue. Clients we talk to think that there's going to be some resolution, at least in principle, on the trade front going into the midterm elections, hmm. to give the president and the administration some kind of win on this very basic topic that they've addressed this year.
0: Okay, so we might be churning until November, but something will happen to, right. to get resolution. Right. We also spoke with Josh Ginsburg, co-founder and CEO of Zignal Labs, about their work helping companies fight back against bots online. Social media disinformation campaigns upended politics during the 2016 presidential election. But Josh explained to us how the corporate world is also under attack. We started off by asking him just how often social media posts by companies get amplified in the wrong way by bots.
3: It can actually be quite common, particularly during situations where there's negative news or earnings days. We can see that amplification by bots be as high as 60 percent of the overall conversation, which you can imagine has a really big impact on that company and their bottom line.
2: Uh, when we hit in politics, you can sort of see why people might have a bot army to advance some agenda.
3: What is it on the corporate side? Who is behind uh, nefarious bots? It's a great question. And we sort of narrow it down into four different categories. Number one, uh, financial gain. What are ways that you can put out information so you can uh, benefit from that financially? So stock manipulation? is that- that Oftentimes okay. there are situations like that, for sure. Uh, number two, just hitting corporate reputation and hitting the corporate brand, if you're on the other side of a corporation for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. Uh, Number three, more cultural weaponization. So think of things like take a knee in the NFL. We see a huge amount of bot activity around that. Uh, And then number four, in the political space, to advance a political agenda.
0: Now, if you're a company with news to announce, is it better to schedule something and tease ahead or to drop it on the market like a surprise in order to get away from these bot armies? Or is there just no way of doing it once it's out there on social media?
3: Well, once it's out there, it's out there. So that's sort of one of the challenges that companies have to face now. And as long as you have technology that enables you to see how a story is spreading, who's taking hold of that story, um, that's what's important. Now, one of the biggest issues are companies usually have no idea that these attacks are occurring. When we go to a company and say, hey, you were just hit by a major bot attack, Mm -hmm. that's what happened to this story here. They have no idea. And there's an awareness issue that needs to occur right now. So what does the response look like? the the response of a company? Yeah, so okay, you go to a company, they're getting hit by some sort of bot attack, then what? Well, so, Number one, they're usually quite surprised it's happening. So one of the things that we say is you have to have a different type of communications. So let's say it's impacting their stock price. You can't have the same type of communication strategy. You need to have a playbook, for example, where the CEO goes up on TV and says, look, this is stock price manipulation that's occurring right now. Mm -hmm. That type of proactive activities are really, really important so that people know what's going on.
0: And it's not just the companies themselves that have no idea. Media flat platforms, legitimate media platforms also are get sucked up into this as well. You had a great case study about a Bloomberg story actually on um, Nestle and bottling water that it doesn't pay for. Um, bot networks repeatedly put it on trending lists months after the story was originally published. And that just prompted Bloomberg to Put it out as a separate story because it was getting a lot of hits which then just perpetuates the cycle
3: exactly isn't that an interesting case study so um that story continually once a month would get amplified by bots so bloomberg saw it they said oh man we're really this is really resonating this is really a big story to the point where they retweeted it more than six months later they put it back out there And what we're able to see on those types of situations, this goes to the corporate reputation, corporate brand, there is uh, environmental interests behind that type of bot network. And from Nestle's perspective, they're just seeing getting hit with the story monthly. So now they're scrambling with resources and stuff like that to answer to those types of stories. So understanding why you're getting hit with those things is so important in this environment. So activists
2: of some sort of political ideology or some sort of cause, environmental these are the types of um... groups that would be inclined to amplify stories yeah,
3: yeah and you can even take it further there are other types of groups who might want to have financial gain or international Uh, relations purposes. So there's lots of different motives behind this. I think what's the most important thing right now are that people are aware it's happening. I think it gets talked about a lot in politics, and that's important. Mm -hmm. But it needs to be talked about more in the corporate space. It's a really big problem for companies nowadays.
0: Okay, so clearly this is happening on Twitter. And a lot of companies, a lot of consumers say they prefer to go to Instagram where things can't go viral in Mm. quite the same way. Do you see this kind of amplification, this negative amplification on platforms like Instagram
3: well, that's one of the biggest problems that's occurring out here. It's not just a Twitter or an Instagram problem. It's across all platforms, all the way down to uh, news sites in the comment section. We're seeing bots occur there, too, and they're all feeding off of one another. So that's why it's not as straightforward as just, hey, let's take down all the bots off of one singular platform. It's much broader than that, which makes it really challenging for uh, companies as well as consumers.
0: So if you had to guesstimate how much of the negativity and the trolling out there is bots generated, what would it be?
3: Well, I can tell you during stories that are negative towards a company, um, we can see it be upwards of 60% in those given uh, instances. So if a company's getting attacked, it's really, really important that they have that source reliability. They're able to see, is this humans or is this being perpetuated by bots?
0: Then I sat down with Jason Robbins, CEO of DraftKings, to talk about their launch of Sportsbook, the first mobile app for sports betting rolled out in New Jersey. Jason shared their outlook as fans finish up their fantasy drafts and get ready for the new NFL season.
4: you know it's just a few weeks I think a lot more will get in before the NFL season starts but it's certainly nice to be first I'm very proud of the team they work really hard I mean we were working on this for almost a year by the time it got launched so
0: yeah you were well prepared it. for this I mean the SCOTUS ruling came about and by the time we got the ruling itself you had about six months plus uh, spent on developing a sports gambling product right
4: yeah we started almost right after the SCOTUS initially announced that they were going to take up the case so we've been working on it for almost a year by the time and the ruling came and it was very much like an all hands on deck type thing at the end i mean the team was like working every night every weekend to get it out as soon as possible
0: so talk a little bit about the numbers that you have gathered so far mobile online gambling in new jersey still very early days right now but there are probably some there's some sense of size and scope you can offer uh in terms of market opportunity what, what can you tell us?
4: Well, it really depends how many states do this. You know, I think, obviously, you know, the more states, the more the market will grow. Mm-hmm. And then interestingly, like in an individual state level, I think it affects in the opposite way. So New Jersey, for example, being so close to New York, and now New York doesn't have mobile sports betting, a lot of people might be crossing over the bridge uh, first week of NFL season to make a few bets. And so it'll be interesting. I think a lot of the, the you know, revenue is probably leaking out of New York now. But hopefully, if New York does this next year, that'll change things. All in, though, we think this is a market that's tens of billions of dollars, hundreds of billions in in handle and tens of billions in revenue, Mm -hmm. um, assuming that that a good chunk of states end up uh, actually legalizing sports betting.
0: And in terms of um, how you've moved against your competitor, you've proven to be fairly nimble, faster than larger competitors. How much do you see the business changing when the William Hills and the MGMs of the world start catching up and, and really gaining traction?
4: Well, we love competition. Competition is what gets everybody up in the morning. It's like sports. If you got nobody on the other side of the field, why even bother showing up? So, you know, for us, it's really about making sure that we always stay at the top of our game and innovating and responding to our customers. And if we do that, we think we'll stack up well against the competition.
0: Well, is your is your technology really that much superior to the competition? I'm just wondering what in particular gives you your edge or what you think is your competitive advantage?
4: Well, I think first we are a tech company, whereas a lot of the competition are are, uh, basically hotel and hospitality businesses that have launched online businesses. They'll still be fierce competitors and they'll do a great job of it. But Mm -hmm. we feel the online and mobile piece is more core to our DNA. Mm -hmm. We also have a huge database and brand already in the sports space. And people already identify and think of us as a place to go bet on sports. So that's a major advantage. And we have that nationally, whereas most casinos only have in their local markets that they operate in.
0: How is your approach to daily fantasy different from your approach to online gambling? Is it the same target audience? I mean, if if we had a Venn diagram, how much overlap is there between the two circles?
4: it's actually quite a lot as you might imagine so about 80 percent of our customers report that they're already betting on sports regularly um, i imagine that number would be even higher if people didn't have to admit they were doing it on the black market <laughs> as part of the survey and so i think you know it's potentially even 90 percent or more so it's very heavy overlap mm-hmm. they're very complementary we don't find people say they do one or the other they tend to try both and mm-hmm. If they like both, they keep doing both. So we think it's really complimentary, and our existing database will work really uh, will cross over very well. Okay.
0: And with the NFL season getting ready to start in two weeks' time, people assume that that's the biggest sport everyone bets on. Is it or is it something like college football or college basketball where there are more games and, therefore, more outcomes that you can wager?
4: So there's definitely a mix, right? I mean, college sports have a lot of games. Same with, like, baseball and basketball. But NFL is still the giant. I mean, even with less games, we see this in the same thing on the fantasy side. There's, mm-hmm. It's closer than people would probably think because you're right. There's so many more games, so many more betting opportunities in those sports but there's just such a big audience playing nfl watching nfl that it's hard for that to be overcome
0: now online gambling meets nfl season two weeks we've talked about uh, how you have some new products coming out as well that you're pretty excited about launching but the kneeling controversy remains and of course we can expect the president to sound off and (laughs) contribute to that debate as well i think there's a lot of people wondering whether we've reached peak football whether there's some kind of cultural fatigue with, with football. Uh, do you worry that there's less rabid interest in the NFL and that would hurt or could hurt the daily fantasy or online gambling component? Um,
4: You know, I think the two can actually help each other. So more people betting, more people playing fantasy should help grow the NFL viewership numbers. I don't think the NFL is going anywhere. You know, will they have a little bit of, you know, up and down period like any sport, any business at some point in their life cycle? Yeah, I mean, it was impossible to imagine they were just going to be on a record growth tear forever, Mm -hmm. but they're huge and they have a lot of really smart people as owners and executives there. They're going to do a great job putting a great product out for people and, I don't think the NFL is going anywhere anytime soon.
0: How have the sports leagues changed their their uh, rhetoric towards gambling and versus daily fantasy uh, betting?
4: Um, you know, it's interesting if you had asked me five, six years ago and. Uh, and said to me, hey, would you guess in five years that the sports leagues would generally be supportive of legal sports betting? I would have thought you were crazy, but here we are. So it's pretty amazing to watch. I think there's a lot of factors at play. There's some new commissioners in at baseball and basketball. Obviously, Adam Silver over on the NBA yeah, side. Yeah, he's
0: been out front. He's
4: been out front from pretty much day one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think really people get where the world's going and you got to adapt and you got to go with it. If you try to fight it, then Where are you going to be left? And to your previous question, I think that's why the NFL will continue to be a great sports league, continue to grow their audience, succeed. They get it, and they follow where the trends are. They're not trying to bury their head in the sand, which to me says a lot about the uh, ability of that league to continue to adapt and grow.
0: Well, the owners see it, and therefore the commissioner sees it as well. That's how it works. And finally, we spoke with Ray Zucaro, chief investment officer of RVX Asset Management and Venezuelan bondholder about President Maduro's big bet on a historic currency devaluation that plunged the boulevard by 95%. We asked whether he was surprised by the move.
5: Well, if you look at how the parallel rate was trading the, the, to, from where the official rate was, the currency effectively was devalued anyway. Yes. So they, they, they just put in, into place what had actually been taking place in the market, and they actually identified it. For a while, it was illegal to talk about the black market rate, and now effectively the black market rate is now the official rate. If you look at where they cut off the zero, so it's more or less the equivalent. Look, it just shows you that the, the, the economic policies of the Maduro government, it's almost like throwing spaghetti on their wall. They're just trying different things. They talked about... Minimum wage hike of 3,000 percent overnight, lopping off five zeros, 95 percent devaluations, day-to-day society in Venezuela. I don't know how you. I'm a numbers guy, and I don't know how you define a failed state. But if you look at Venezuela, they're unable to provide food for their people, unable to provide personal security, unable unable to provide utilities. Venezuela, by any definition that I know of, is a failed state.
2: Does acknowledging that the does acknowledging the black market rate and not pretending that it's something else, is that plausibly any sign of some turnaround? I mean, acknowledging a market rate? At
5: the margin, yes. They're, they're admitting, OK, well, the FX, the, the exchange rate that we had before, the strong boulevard, we, we threw that out. And now we're going we're to tie our currency to a cryptocurrency that we made ourselves that doesn't really trade. Right. It's, it's kind of admitting it, but they didn't really quite yeah. do the, they didn't, they didn't follow through yet.
0: What does this mean for Nicolas Maduro? I mean, he still has the support of the military, right?
5: Look, that's what the common knowledge is. But the upper echelons of the military are probably benefited by the Maduro and his, his the, the inner circle around him are protected. But your average common person you has a mother who's having a hard time getting food, who has a sister who's getting attacked on the way to her job if, she can, if, she has, if the metro's working that day, mm-hmm. if the power grid is working that day, if she's actually able to get the job, if they're able to find food, your average person in the military, I would say, is still suffering. Yes, he's protected by the upper echelon, but does that mean the rank and file are protecting him? I, I find that hard to believe.
2: So what do we watch for next there?
5: I think the news flow out of Venezuela is so bad that I think we have to be near an end, closer to the end game than, than we've ever been before. I can't tell if it's going to happen tomorrow, two weeks from now, two years from now, but I tell you, the news flow of the country is unbelievably bad.
0: Yeah, Venezuela has these valuable assets, right? Without a doubt. These oil reserves
5: not just oil reserves steel iron climate wonderful caribbean beaches outside the hurricane belt i mean if you believe in a higher being you, he really or he or she gave venezuela everything mm-hmm. and it's it, it's the mismanagement of all the resources everyone associates it with oil and gas but venezuela has really been blessed with most natural resources
0: now when it comes to how the government can make the most of those resources and and use it in a way to do some good do you see a path there mm-hmm.
5: Look, they're still paying. There was a time where Venezuela did open up its natural resources, whether it be in mining and oil and gas, and then the Chavez regime nationalized a lot of those assets, and, and this regime today, ConocoPhillips won a $2 billion uh, action against their assets that had been nationalized. Venezuela would have to go back on those nationalizations and bring foreign capital, human capital, intellectual capital, and financial capital to really take advantage of those resources. And until, t- until they change their economic policies and you know, uh, shareholder rights and protection of the law, it's hard to see foreign investors really coming back in and mess.
0: Yeah. I mean, the humanitarian crisis, um, understandably, is the focus of everyone here. But as an investor in Venezuela, how do you look at this country? I mean, at what point do you say that you're at a point where things can, can start to get better or it's at least stopped bottoming out?
5: As I mentioned, I am continuing to be involved in Venezuelan debt that's no longer current because I do ultimately see a lot of potential for recovery in Venezuela. If you do make economic choices that are difficult politically, but for society, they can be made. I do think you see a lot of potential for the, the D- GDP to come back very quickly.
2: Could other, uh, do you anticipate more action from other regional powers, especially given some of the humanitarian crisis and refugee crises at the border?
5: Frankly, I've been a little bit disappointed with how other regional neighbors have been treating Venezuela. Venezuela, who once was one of the the richest countries in Latin America, took in a lot of immigrants and gave them opportunities. You had humanitarian crises in in Trinidad, where Venezuelans were being attacked, um, to Ecuador requiring visas now for Venezuelans to visit, to a camp over the weekend in Brazil was basically burnt down. So you're seeing the regional neighbors almost turn against Venezuela, which once was a a large provider of workers for those for the lower economic classes in those countries.
0: That does it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like this podcast, please be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. And of course, tune in every week to our Daily Market Close show from 3.30 to 5 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend.